Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Welcome back, y'all. Hey, y'all. Or if it's your first time, welcome. Yeah. Either way, yeah. we're happy to have you. We haven't welcomed a first timer in quite a quite a while. I know. And should we talk about the Patreon? I think we should. Yeah, I think we so should. too. Yeah. Lots of goodies over there. Oh man. Yeah. So if you join our Patreon, you get ad-free episodes. Mm-hmm. So there's there's the one thing right there. And then at the $10 level, you get two extra episodes a week. Actually, so three. We, technically. Technically. Cause, technically. Because now we're doing the Sunday drop of just like a check-in. That's true. Mm-hmm. And today, when we recorded it, was absolutely a full episode. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was a... We, we could not shut up. stop. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so we do a murder mixtape on Wednesdays. And then we have a docu-series or documentary coverage called Doc Jams that we drop on Fridays. So... There are reasons to go over there. Yeah, there's so many reasons. It's patreon.com slash killer queens pod. Yay. Yay. All right. Well, do you want to get into it? I think we should. I think we should. If you are a person who clicked on purpose, then you know that this is the Amy Mahalovic case. Yes. And this was suggested by Colleen Kinney. And we also want to throw in a trigger warning. This has to do with the brief mention. I mean, we're not going to dwell on anything, but it's sexual assault, child abuse, and child murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have a hard time with the, you know, cases involving children. So we completely understand if you need to pass this one by. Yeah. No worries at all. We hopefully will catch you on the next one if it's not, not something you want to get into. Yeah, totally. And thank you to Madison for writing the script. Yay. We love our team. We have the best team. Oh my gosh. Yes, we do. Okay. So I think we should just get into it. And here's a brief overview. 10-year-old Amy Mihaljevic was a bright, beautiful young girl living in the sleepy town of Bay Village, Ohio with her family. She loved school, horses, and being silly. In the summer of 1989, she and her best friend Christy brought out a Ouija board at a sleepover. She asked the board when she would die and the board spelled out soon. The girls didn't think much of it. Less than six months after their summer sleepover, Amy was dead. She was abducted by an unknown man who'd convinced her over the phone to meet him to buy her mother a present. The same man had attempted to meet with other young girls around the area by calling their houses and telling them that he was friends with their mother. Though on the day of her abduction, Amy had sat through a stranger danger presentation at school, something about this man had convinced her that he was safe. What had the man said to Amy? But more importantly, who was he? Ugh. You know, it's really crazy. Like, just this week, earlier this week, Andrew was like, we need to start talking to the boys about Stranger Danger. And then we record this episode. But it's one of those things where, like, you have to be, it's like you don't want them to be afraid of people. 
But at the same time, but you have to let them know dangers are out there. Yeah, yeah. Cause, and they're both pretty, like, outgoing kids, I guess. I'll, you know, they'll talk to our neighbors and people that walk by and stuff like that. But it's definitely something that, like, they need to know that nobody is ever going to pick them up from school unless, you know, other than us. And if they are, we will be the ones to tell them. Like, mm-hmm. somebody's not going to show up and be like, hey, I'm your mom. Your mom sent me to pick you up or whatever. Like, Right. You know, Absolutely. it's like that kind of stuff you have to tell them. It's so sad. And if somebody invites you to go somewhere, you got to ask mom. And it mm-hmm. has to be, or dad, and it has to be okayed by both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I will say your boys, even though they are very outgoing, I did scare the bejesus out of Jesse by changing my hair color. And he very much had a stranger danger situation. Well, that's true. Yeah. He didn't recognize you at all. No, until I started doing our favorite Yeah, he was like, wait a minute. I know this bitch now. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't place you. I couldn't put my finger on it. But yeah, that's true. So they might have a little a little bit of caution in them. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, let's get into who was Amy. Amy Renee Mihalovic was born on December 11th, 1978 in Little Rock, Arkansas to Mark and Margaret. Oh, no. I've got that song in my head. Oh, Tori. I'm sorry. Now I have it in my head and I wasn't even thinking about it. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. You love Colin Ray and don't act like you don't. Oh, I do love Colin Ray. He's great. My little ray of sunshine. I know. Amy had an older brother named Jason. She was a reserved and quiet little girl unless she was super comfortable around you. If she knew you well, it was easy to pick up how bright of a girl she was. She was in gifted classes at school and could be very outgoing. In a video that her family released to the public after her disappearance, Amy is seen giving a report on a book in front of her class. She has a huge smile and seemed just, you know, like a fun, happy little girl. Mm. When Amy was just three years old, her family moved from Jackson, Mississippi to Bay Village, Ohio. Just outside of Cleveland, Bay Village was voted one of America's safest communities in the 80s. That's so sad. I know. Like, when stuff like that happens, it's like you let your guard down, you know? You're just like, mm-hmm. you're in a city where you're just like, nothing's going to happen here. Well, yeah. And I feel like, I mean, the 70s were definitely the time when people left their doors unlocked. People were not as scared. I'm sure that trickled into the 80s. But when you move to one of the safest towns in a whole state— Right. Yeah. You just, you're not, I think for most people, this kind of thing is not on their radar anyway, but not for like true crime people. Yeah. I was going to say for most people, but for us. Yeah. That's all I think about. (laughs) Yes. I lock my, I keep my door locked all day, all night long. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So it was voted one of the um, America's safest communities in the eighties. And it was a middle-class area that was carefree. Children could ride their bikes everywhere without fear. You know, like you said, people aren't locking their doors. They totally trusted their neighbors. And they also, like the kids would go home, you know, before the parents. And so they'd be home alone for a while while the parents were still working. And they, you know, they're not worried about that. Oh, they're latchkey kids. Yeah, they feel very, very safe. The Mihalovics moved because Mark had landed a new job at a nearby auto dealership. Margaret started working at a local sales paper called Trading Times. The family blossomed in their new home. Mark referred to Amy as the can-do kid. 
She wasn't scared to try new things, and she even jumped off the high dive at the nearby pool when she was only five. Jeez, I'm still scared to do that. I know. That's really impressive. Like, my swim instructor made me do it when I was like eight or nine, and I was terrified. I know. Ugh. What a cool kid. It's so sad. I know. Amy had a passion for horses, and she loved riding. She was taking lessons at a local ranch, riding her favorite horse, Razzle. Oh. That's a cute name. And that really hits close to home because I think a lot of little girls went through a horse phase, so you can kind of relate. I mean, I still am in a horse phase, I think, so. Yeah. Horse girl. I am. Former. Well, a recovering horse girl. Yeah. Oh, no, that wasn't your name. It was soccer girl. It was soccer girl, but I mean, you could have, they would have been interchangeable. Yeah, basically. I did not go through a horse phase. See, you went through a dolphin and whale phase. Yeah, I sure did. I sure did. Yeah. I had like a whale fluke necklace and stuff. And whale plush animals and stuff. Yeah. I mean, free willy, man. I'll do it to you. (laughs) Yeah. Like most kids in Bay Village, Amy rode her bicycle everywhere. Her friend Jennifer said that other kids would make fun of her bike because it was a little run down, but Amy loved it. And Mm -hmm. she said that Amy was like not afraid to be different and unique, you know? And that's really difficult for kids because kids are mean. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have the newest thing or whatever, you know, sometimes kids will make fun of you. And she was just like, whatever, I like this bike. Like, Well, and I read a statistic somewhere. I don't know if I'm getting it completely accurate, but it's something like, Little girls, when they turn like seven or nine, that's when they become aware of what they look like and wanting to fit in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she didn't care. Yeah. She was just like her own person. Mm-hmm. So sweet. And that's so hard to do as a little girl, too, I feel like. So no. ah, she was just so special. Okay. So Jennifer and Amy had another best friend, Christy Sabo, and they were all practically inseparable. They had tons of sleepovers. They loved watching Dirty Dancing. And Christy's mom said she'd look into the room and see Amy and Christy sitting in the same chair, covered in a blanket, watching movies together. And like they would like kind of snuggle up and it was so sweet. It was so sweet. Amy had no shortage of people who cared about her and she seemed to have a happy, normal childhood. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the day of the abduction. On Friday, October 27th, 1989, the day started out like any other day. At 7.20 a.m., Jason and Amy rode their bikes to school. Amy was in the fifth grade and Jason was in the seventh grade, but they both attended the same school. Christy remembered walking down the hall past Amy's classroom that morning. She looked in and saw her friend hunched over and writing at her desk. That day, an officer from the Bay Village Police Department came in as a special guest to talk about the children, talk to the children about stranger danger. He gave the fifth graders a rundown of how to stay safe and why it was important to be aware of people around them, especially if they were strangers. The fifth grade classes were dismissed around 2 p.m. They were always released an hour before seventh graders, so it was typical for Amy to beat Jason home. Around 3.10 p.m. when Jason left school, his plans changed. He planned on biking to a nearby strip mall because it had a or he had a coupon for Baskin Robbins. The shopping area, the Bay Square Shopping Center, was a popular area for school-age kids to hang out after school. It was within walking and biking distance from school and only about four minutes away. The Baskin Robbins was on one end of the shopping center. When Jason was released from school that day, he decided not to go to Baskin Robbins. He'd heard that a few boys from school were going to be there and he didn't, that he didn't get along with and rather be one of the victims of bullies, Jason decided to head home. 
around 3.10 p.m., Jason arrived home to the Mahalovic house. He expected for his younger sister to already be home, snacking and watching TV, but she was nowhere to be found. She would have taken the same route home from school that Jason did, so he would have seen her if she'd stopped off or had an accident. He decided to call his mother, who was at work. He told her that he'd just gotten home and Amy wasn't there. Margaret was immediately concerned. This was very unlike her daughter. Margaret told Jason that she was leaving work and coming home. Just after hanging up with Jason, Margaret's office phone rang again. It was Amy. She said that she was home and she was fine before telling her mom that she'd see her soon and hung up. Margaret sensed that something wasn't right. Her daughter didn't sound like her normal self, and she made the 10-minute drive home and found Jason in the house and no sign of Amy. Mm, That is just so terrifying. It is. Obviously, she was trying to cover up what she was doing, and you know, it's a completely innocent reason for her to have wanted to leave the house. She wanted to get a present for her. Mm-hmm. But it's just, oh God, it's so sad. Yeah. And this is a time before, of course, before cell phones, but before caller ID. Right. So she couldn't have known where she was calling from. Yeah. It's so frustrating. It's like, I feel like if we just had like one additional piece of information, this mm-hmm. case could be solved. Absolutely. But it, we're just missing that one thing. Something, yeah. Yeah. Panic began to set in and Margaret knew something was wrong. At 5.35 p.m., she left and or she left Jason at home and drove to the school to look for her daughter. Doors to the school were locked, but no one was around and she saw Amy's bike still sitting on the bike rack. Just before 6 p.m., Margaret drove to the Bay Village Police Department to report her 10-year-old daughter missing. The officer on duty that day who took the report was Mark Spatzel. He wasted no time in alerting other officers about the missing child. The search around Bay Village started immediately. Police asked Margaret to return home in case Amy called again or, you know, showed up at home. At 6.30 p.m., Amy's father, Mark, arrived home from work. That's a long day. It was a really long day. I mean, I don't know what time he went in, I guess, but that seems late. Margaret told police that Amy's phone call just did not sound right. It was extremely out of character for her to lie. And, you know, it was only a 10-minute car ride, so she knew that she was not at home when she called. She couldn't have Mm -hmm. been. The Mihalovics began calling everyone they could think of, hoping it was just a miscommunication and that Amy was safe somewhere. Maybe she forgot to tell them she went to a friend's house or something. Christy remembered being at a friend's party when she found out about Amy. The mother of the party host came downstairs and asked if anyone had seen Amy, and no one there recalled seeing her once school let out that day. Around 8.45 p.m., friends and family members were flooding the Mahalovic house to help search. Several men walked the banks of the French Creek that ran from the Bay Square shopping center to the lake in case Amy had an accident. A family friend got a copy of Amy's school picture from her mother and drove it to the local Channel 3 news station, asking them if they could put it on the news that evening. (sighs) Okay, (laughs) so the news station were like, No, we don't do that. We can't put that on the news until she's been missing for 24 hours. Isn't that the police's job to say that? Like, I know, yeah. It's like, basically, like, if you try to order a shake at McDonald's or like, oh, it's broken, like, Mm -hmm. you have to wait 24 hours. And rightfully so, this woman threw a fit and she was like, you know, if you wait 24 hours, she'll be dead. Do you want that on your hands? Like, what the hell? Right. So she was obviously hoping that they would change their minds. And when she got back to the Mahalovic home, she heard Margaret just 
screaming like she could hear it from outside. And she found her standing in front of the television, horrified by the reality that her daughter's photo was on the news listed as a missing child. And Mm. she described it as this just guttural scream. We've talked about that scream before. Yes. Yes. It's the scream that only a mother can produce, uh, from what I have heard, Mm -hmm. of a mom missing or losing a child. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we talked about it in the Shauna Howe case. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like that's the first time I heard it described as guttural. Yeah. Maybe. But yeah. Oh, so awful. The next day, Saturday, the search continued. Police had helicopters, planes, and search dogs out looking for any sign of Amy. The FBI was quick to join the search and went about questioning the family. Margaret was confirmed to have been at work by several coworkers during the time that Amy had disappeared. Her husband, Mark, was at work at a Buick dealership in Cleveland. He left work, stopped for gas, and arrived home at 6.30 p.m. His alibi was verified and the family was eliminated as suspects. Police pretty quickly dismissed the idea of Amy being a runaway as well. There was no information to point to Amy being unhappy or having any history of running away. Her best friend Christy told police that Amy would never leave home on her own because she loved her dog too much. (sighs) It's just so sweet. It's like totally something that like a little kid would say, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. but she loved her dog. She can't leave here. Like. Ugh. Oh, so sad. It's so sad. As the searches continued in Bay Village and the surrounding areas, there was a media blast with Amy's picture and pleas for information regarding her whereabouts or if anyone had seen her after school. Classmates from Amy's school came forward to provide more information about her movement after school that day. Two friends confirmed that she had left the school around 2.04 p.m. when class was dismissed. The three of them walked the short distance to the Bay Square Shopping Center or where there were already several classmates hanging out in front of the Baskin-Robbins. They said that Amy left them to stand by herself and then continued on. The two 11-year-olds recalled seeing Amy standing by a pole on the sidewalk near Baskin-Robbins, looking like she was waiting for someone. They saw a man approach her, lean down to speak to her, and place his hand on her back as he guided her towards the parking lot. At this time, not really thinking anything of what they've seen, the kids turned away and back to their friends. When they looked back, both Amy and the man were gone. The two suspects or two witnesses were able to provide enough details for a composite sketch. While their physical descriptions of the man didn't exactly match, they did have some similarities. Both described a white male, approximately 30 to 35 years old, between 5'8 and 5'10 with dark hair. Both sketches were shown to them halibics, but they didn't recognize either of them. Well, and this, I thought this was kind of weird. So one sketch had the man wearing glasses and yes. one didn't. Mm-hmm. It's strange that like one one of the kids was like, he was definitely wearing glasses and the other one was like, I don't remember him wearing glasses. That's kind of a defining, you know, like, yeah, it seems like you're- It's a big detail. It. But I guess too, if you aren't thinking anything of it, you're not paying that close attention, maybe. Yeah, you're not even thinking to remember what he looked exactly. like. Exactly, yeah, there's no need to. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's- so sad and so crazy. Mm-hmm. Not long after police spoke to the two witnesses from the shopping center, one of the Mahalovic's neighbors brought her stepdaughter to the station. The girl said that during lunch period on the day of Amy's disappearance, she told her that she'd received a phone call from a man who told her that her mother was being promoted at work. He wanted to take Amy out to buy a gift for her mother and one for herself. This story confirmed what investigators and Amy's family had been dreading. Amy had been abducted. Mm. 
Jason was shocked that his sister had seemed to walk off willingly with a stranger. He said that despite his sister being only 10 years old, she was very smart and definitely knew better than to leave with a stranger. And the rest of Amy's friends and family agreed, which left everyone wondering, how did this man convince Amy to meet and leave with him? 24 hours after Amy's abduction, the composite sketches were released to the media. Investigators worked on developing a psychological profile of the man. The last phone call that Amy made to her mother told them a lot. It was very likely that Amy was with her captor when she made that call. That suggested the man had quite a bit of confidence allowing her to speak to her mom while she was with him. But I mean, like, also, I mean, I'm sure she was terrified. Just the whole thing is just sad. But I mean, you know, that's a huge risk because she could very well just be like, hey, somebody has me, you know? Right. 24 hours after Amy's abduction, the composite sketches were released to the media. Investigators worked on developing a psychological profile of the man. And that last phone call that Amy made to her mother told them a lot. It was a short phone call, but it was packed with information. It was very likely that Amy was with her captor at the time that she made the call. And that suggested that the man had quite a bit of confidence, allowing her to speak with her mom while she was with him. That's a huge risk. I mean, Mm -hmm. you don't know what she's going to say. I'm sure she was terrified and didn't want to. Or maybe at this point, the charade is still going. You know, like maybe he's like, okay, yeah, just tell your mom. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And she's not wanting to give away the surprise. So she's just right. And I'm sure he I'm fine. Everything's fine. He probably told her too, like, hey, just let her let her know that you're okay, But don't tell her. Remember, because it's a surprise. It's a secret. Yeah, this is our secret. Yeah. It was possible that he had Amy call to see if her mother had realized that she was missing, as well as to buy some time before her mother contacted the police. But he took a huge risk by meeting her in a very public place, and that reinforced his confidence in his plan. He was clearly a manipulator and a risk taker. I mean, her friends saw them leave together. Mm -hmm. I think that it says a ton about this individual. And like you just said, I mean, the fact that it clearly like reinforces confidence, but I think it's just so, it's so insane to me, but I think what we have seen with other murderers and serial killers alike, they're like, well, they're never going to, no one's going to ever catch me. Right. Yeah. I can do what I want. Ugh. And so far he's right. Uh. The next step was to dissect the reported phone call that Amy had received from her abductor. They believed he must have had some background on the family to convince her that he knew her mother. Police began searching for a connection with Margaret. She hadn't gotten a promotion, but had recently gone from part-time to full-time at the Trading Times. It's possible that Amy might have believed that this was a promotion. Margaret said it was possible that she could have met someone while on her lunch break at work and told them about her transition to full-time. But, you know, again, that's not something that you would be like, yeah, I remember every person I've ever talked to on my lunch break, you know? Like, right. you just don't think anything of it. Like, when you just... Well, yeah, that's one of those things, like, in passing, where it's like, oh, you know, nothing notable there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, you know, if somebody's just like, oh, what do you do? And you're like, oh, actually, I just, you know, went from part-time to full-time, you know, whatever. Like, <sighs> you know, there's no reason to think anything of it, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Police sent out letters in Bay Village and surrounding towns asking if children had received any suspicious phone calls recently, hoping they might find a connection. And they quickly found a girl around Amy's age in a nearby town who had received a similar phone call the summer prior to Amy's abduction. The girl was babysitting her younger brother. He answered the phone and told her he didn't know who it was, and so she took the phone from him. The man on the other end of the phone wanted to know if she'd go with him to pick out a present for her mother because they were old friends. Hmm. Hmm. The girl hung up and immediately called her mother. Her mom was concerned and filed a police report. When the mother heard about Amy's disappearance, she called the police and told them about her daughter's phone call. When officers came to talk to them, they noticed that the girl had a ton of horse riding ribbons on her walls. She told them that she rode at a nearby farm called Holly Hill, and this was the exact same farm where Amy took her riding lessons. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's like he's targeting specific little girls that love to ride horses. Exactly. And like, you know, does he have a connection to this mm-hmm. ranch? This farm? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so Holly Hill Farm was at the edge of Bay Village, and Amy was a regular and well-known there. Police wasted no time in executing a full search of the farm. Divers, dogs, and helicopters were used to search the area, which was very isolated at the time. There was a man who stood out to investigators. He was the caretaker who lived in a home in front of the stables. He was a relative of the farm owners and was often described as odd, unusual, like he made people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And reportedly, parents had complained about how creepy he was. Amy's friends said that he'd always paid extra attention to her, too. During the search of the farm, police found a pair of green sweatpants that fit the general description of what Amy had been wearing when she was abducted. They were collected and immediately sent off to be examined. Not long after police found out about the first girl who got in a mysterious phone call, they were contacted by another family. Two sisters who lived in nearby North Olmsted had gotten similar phone calls. The caller told the girls that he worked with their mom. He asked them personal questions about their ages, hobbies, their friends, and they felt he must have known when to call because they were always home alone when he called, which is so freaking creepy because it's mm-hmm. like they were like, as soon as mom would leave, we'd get a phone call. Mm-mm. It's like he, he was watching them or something. Every time he called, the girls noticed a car sitting outside of their house, too, and they believed it was the caller watching them. Oh, God. So scary. The town of Bay Village was in a panic as well as the surrounding areas. Children did not go missing in Bay Village. With the discovery of the likely connection of the phone calls, everyone was on edge knowing that there's a predator in the area. During the first week after Amy's abduction, police received between 400 and 600 tips and they followed up on every single one with no strong leads. The composite sketches were updated by an FBI sketch artist and released again to the public. Amy's disappearance had become a national news story and her face was everywhere. She was featured on America's Most Wanted. With the updated sketch, police received multiple tips about a local handyman that matched the description. His parents lived right across from the Bay Square shopping center and he had recently worked on a house just a few doors down from Amy's. Police looked into the handyman and found that he had a rock-solid alibi for the time of Amy's abduction. One month after Amy's disappearance, on November 30th, 1989, 
The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children received a phone call from a female. The voice said that she was Amy Mahalovic and she was in Farmington, Maine. Mm. The police immediately brought the recording to the call of the call to the Mahalovics, who confirmed that the voice belonged to Amy. Police in Farmington were contacted and a search began in the area. No sign of Amy was found. Despite Amy's parents believing the voice belonged to their daughter, FBI voice anal- analysts, mm, analysis, <laughs> yeah, jeez, determined that it was not Amy. Continued investigation into the call found that the caller was a hoaxer who'd made similar calls in the past who also had severe mental problems. She had no connection to Amy. The Mahalovics and police were hit with yet another dead end when they found out that the green sweatpants located at Holly Hill Farms did not belong to Amy. Mark and Margaret were determined to keep Amy's face and name in the spotlight. They knew that if her name fell out of the news, it would lessen the chances of people being on the lookout for her. On December 11th, Amy's 11th birthday, her parents and family made public pleas for the return of Amy. Her best friend, Christy, said, happy birthday. I hope you're alive and I hope you come home soon. Margaret wrote her daughter a letter that Jason read aloud. It said that if Amy were there, she knows she would choose angel food cake with confetti frosting and spaghetti for dinner. In her honor, that's what they were having for dinner. And she said she wouldn't tell her what her present was. She'd have to come home to see it. Hmm. I just don't know how you go on. These family members and friends are just so strong to like Mm -hmm. keep going. It's so sad. It's so sad. In the early morning hours of Thursday, February 8th, 1990, a jogger on Route 1811 in Ashland County, which is about 50 miles from Bay Village, noticed some clothing off the side of the road. She got closer and saw that it was the body of a young girl dressed in light green clothing. And she immediately contacted the police. And this is why I don't jog. Mm-hmm. It's just not safe. Well, I never find anybody when I'm sitting on the couch watching TV. Exactly. Just saying. Yep. That's the way to go. They placed a call to the Bay Village Police Department to notify them that they found a body and they believed it to be Amy. It was clear that she had been deceased for quite some time. The body was soon confirmed to be that of Amy Mihalovic, and the Bay Village police had to let the family know. And Jason remembered thinking that, like, you know, at least the nightmare was over and that she was at rest, but knowing he would have a wound that would never, ever close. That's a really amazing insight for a kid who's, like, 13, 14 at the time. I know. Yeah, it's just like, and that's another thing that, like, you know, we talk about that ripple effect all the time, but. To have a sibling be abducted and murdered when you're that young, it forces you to grow up Mm -hmm. a lot faster, too, you know? And it's like, there's just so many things. Like, he can't enjoy being a kid anymore. Right. And, of course, he doesn't have a sister there. It's just so sad. Mm -hmm. The field where Amy's body was found was the kind of place where the murderer would have to have prior knowledge of it. It wasn't just a place that he would have come upon by accident. It was a perfect dump spot, which I hate. I know, me too. Yeah. There were no houses nearby, and the flat, long road made it easy to tell if a car was approaching at night and would give the person plenty of time to hide. It didn't appear that Amy had been killed in the field. Based on the initial exam, investigators believed that she'd been killed in another location and was placed there likely within a few days following her abduction. A few yards from Amy's body, they found a curtain and a blanket, and those items were sent for testing. 
Police believed it might have been used to wrap Amy's body. Amy's autopsy showed blunt impact to the back of her head, but that wasn't believed to be fatal. Her cause of death was determined to have been from several stab wounds to the side of her neck. Mm. It's just horrific. She'd been dressed. However, her underwear was on inside out. This led the police to believe that she had been sexually assaulted. Due to the stage of decomposition, the medical examiner was unable to determine if there were any physical signs of sexual assault. All of her clothes were on her, but it was found that her earrings were missing. Amy had worn a pair of turquoise horse head stud earrings to school that morning, and they were nowhere to be found. They thought that the murderer had likely taken her earrings as a trophy. Her backpack was also missing. As the news of Amy's body being found spread, one of the girls who said she'd received a similar phone call told police about something that had happened to her several years before. There are just so many like creepy coincidences and stuff in this case. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy. She was walking through a park when a stranger grabbed her and pulled her into a secluded area where he sexually assaulted her. The man continued to get angrier and angrier, and she believed he was going to kill her before he changed his mind and left her there. She said that the man had taken her clip-on earrings, and they were also horse heads. So weird. So weird. This was the same girl who had boarded horses at the same farm where Amy took riding lessons, and this strengthened their suspicion of the caretaker at Holly Hill Farm. The man told them that he'd been home most of the day, and there was a large period of time where he couldn't confirm his whereabouts. That doesn't look good. No. He's like, yeah, I was home most of the day. And like, I just, there's nobody that can confirm that. So yeah. So you got to take my word for it. Yeah, exactly. Like it doesn't look good. Police took a different approach and administered what they called truth serum. <laughs> Why is this happening? <laughs> I have no idea. I just don't. Whatever. The solution of sodium pentothal. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, my mind wanted to go pentothal, and I'm like, nope. That's That's what I want to do, too. Oh, okay. All right. So it's not just me. Sodium pentothal bypasses a person's inhibitions, and it slows down their brain and takes away their impulse to lie. And it basically, like, the way they described it was that it takes away the brain's energy to lie. But to me, there are plenty of people who I feel like it doesn't take energy to lie because it comes so naturally to them. Right. So I feel like truth serum wouldn't work on them probably. Well, I'm sorry. This could be a completely scientific fact that there's such a thing as a truth serum. But if you say the words truth serum, I don't buy it. Yeah, it's a chemical and people believe it makes you tell the truth. There's, Mm -hmm. yeah. While under the effects of the truth serum, the caretaker still denied having hurt Amy. Police felt he didn't have the mental capabilities to carry out the crime, and he was ruled out. That's not enough. No, that's not enough. (laughs) They're like, well, I mean, on the truth serum, he still said he didn't do it, so he must not have done it. Right. Okay. Yeah. We need to find some other way to corroborate stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous. Two weeks after Amy's body was found, her ashes were scattered in her mother's family plot in Wisconsin. They held a service for her in Bay Village, where the church was overflowing with people who wanted to pay their respects to Amy and her family. With the permission of the Mihalovics, police put cameras inside of the church and in the parking lot, 
looking for anyone who was acting strangely. They felt it was likely that Amy's murderer would want to get close to the family and would have inserted himself into the searches for her. They began to look at everyone who helped out at the Amy Center, which had been the headquarters for Amy's searches. They found that a local man had just died by suicide from drinking a combination of soda and dry gas, which is a car fluid. I've never heard of that. I haven't either. That sounds awful. Not called dry gas, I guess. Yeah, it sounds awful. The man had been heavily involved in the searches for Amy. He was often at the headquarters and he knew Margaret. On the day that Amy's body was found, he had checked himself into a hospital. He looked similar to the composite sketches and had some very strange interactions with the family. He offered multiple times to clean the Mahalovic's home, Hmm. which is super weird. And he mailed objects to Margaret often, including pins with a note that said, one for you and one for Amy when she returns. She recalled a time at the center when the man embraced her in this super creepy way for like an extended period of time. And she was just like, okay, it's time to let go now. And he was just like, holding on. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's just like, you know, and if it's not this person, that's the thing about this case though. It's like, there are so many things that are just bizarre. And it's like, if this isn't the person, that's just crazy because look at all this like weird stuff that's happening. I don't know. Police searched the man's home but found nothing connecting him to Amy. They found he had a recent history of relationship and work troubles along with a history of depression. So it very well just, you know, again, could be a coincidence, which is like, you know, I feel like most investigators are like, I don't believe in coincidences. And I feel like I've said that too, but it just does seem like in this case... There are a lot of coincidences. Mm-hmm. Very strange coincidences. Yeah, really strange. While investigators were looking for anyone who had a connection to Amy, her brother was having a difficult time handling being what he referred to as the brother of the dead girl. He blamed himself and was constantly sad. The never-ending thoughts of whether he could have prevented Amy's abduction and death by going to the shopping center that afternoon like he'd planned. I mean, he he just beat himself up about it. I mean, mm-hmm. what a heavy burden for a 13-year-old boy to carry. Mm-hmm. And if he had gone to the shopping center, like I thought about this, if he'd gone to the shopping center, it's not guaranteed that he would have been there at the exact same time because she got out of school earlier than he did. Mm-hmm. But him going home alerted them to the fact that she wasn't there. Right. So. Maybe he did the entire thing a service by. Right. You know, like he's looking at that as a big mistake, whereas it could have been the key to getting this thing going as soon as it did. Yeah, absolutely. While leads were running out, police received another call about a 10 year old girl in a nearby town who received a similar phone call before Amy's abduction. This is just so creepy. It's like a numbers game. This guy is just like, I have to call as many children as I can. Right. And eventually one will come with me. Yeah. I mean, it's throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. Mm-hmm. She had come home from school and was home alone when the phone rang. The man on the other end said that he was a friend of her mother's and wanted to pick her up after school to go get her mother a present. I mean, just like 
classic MO for this guy. Mm-hmm. The girl said she'd have to ask her grandmother, and the man tried to make her feel guilty for asking permission and, quote, spilling the beans about the surprise present. Mm-mm. All of the girls who'd received calls from the mystery man had similarities in their ages and looks. It was clear that he had a preference. They lived in a small radius around Bay Village, but attended different schools. And that, I mean, I feel like this guy did so much planning, and probably he Like, picking kids from different schools was really smart because you don't want the kids to be like, that's weird. A guy called me saying that he was my mom's friend and I needed to get her Mm. present. Like, Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Though Amy and one of the girls both attended Holly Hill Farm, none of the other girls did. Finally, police were able to find a connection. The Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. Lots of children visited the Nature Center on school field trips and in their free time. Police interviewed the staff and volunteers and found that all visitors, children included, were required to sign a logbook. This book had their names, their addresses, and their phone numbers. Like, why? Why do you need all that in a public book? I don't know. Mm. I mean, I guess on like Airbnbs and stuff, like you sign a guest book and... But why do you need the kids? Yeah, I, it just seems like, yeah, anybody could get a hold of that book and find a kid's address and phone number. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Though the existence of the logbook was confirmed by everyone who worked at the Nature and Science Center, the police were never able to locate it. Therefore, they could not determine if there was a physical link or not. A woman came forward to the Bay Area or Bay Village police and told them that she thought that she may have seen Amy's killer on the side of the road where the body was found. On October 7th, the day before Amy's body was found, she saw a vehicle parked on the side of the road near the dump site. She saw someone standing by the back of the vehicle with the hatch open, but couldn't remember any specific details. Not willing to let information slip by them, police decided to try hypnosis on the woman. (laughs) They're going for all kinds of stuff. I know. Let's get some psychics in here, too. Right. Exactly. Reader tarot cards. Like, that's... Yeah. While under, she was able to recall that it was a 25 to 35-year-old man with a light complexion and dark hair. The vehicle was a dark-colored hatchback. The sketch artist was able to make a composite of the man she'd seen. A few days later, in July of 1990, an officer pulled over a man driving erratically in a dark-colored hatchback. He fit the composite sketch and was screaming at the officer to shoot him, that he was a bad man who deserved to go to jail. The man was clearly intoxicated and arrested. The next morning, he was found on the floor of his cell with a noose made of shoestring around his neck. He was revived, and police found that he worked as a landscaper in Aurora, a nearby town of Bay Village. Much to their surprise, they found that the man had a solid alibi for the day of Amy's abduction. He was in jail on a charge of animal cruelty. So in March of 1990, a 16-year-old girl was abducted 20 miles from the shopping center and found dead in a dumpster soon after. Two months later, a 14-year-old girl vanished from a town 15 miles away from Bay Village, and her body was found decomposed in the woods. Police were considering the possibility of a serial offender. They began looking at prior similar crimes in the area that could have been related to Amy's murder. A year before Amy disappeared, 8-year-old April Tinsley was abducted from a street in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about three hours away from Bay Village. Three days later, her body was found in a ditch with a shoe missing, possibly taken as a trophy. April's killer began to taunt police, writing threats on walls in the community and leaving notes on bikes left out in yards. While police saw connections between April's death and Amy's, they found that April's murderer was a local man who had no connection to Amy or Bay Village. 
it was another dead end. And I think, wasn't that case one that took, like, it was a cold case for a long time and it was more recently solved? I think so, yeah. I can't remember, but I think so. Well, and, I mean, if we're looking at M.O. completely, like, some of the stuff fits. But this guy mm-hmm. was taunting police. He was leaving notes. Like, that's not what we're dealing with right. with Amy, so. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess you could have somebody who changes things up. But, again, like, this is not confession killer where he uses every tool known to man, tire right. tools and shoelaces <laughs> and his feet. Right. Like, no. Typically, they kind of do what works, right? Well, and don't they, over time, kind of get more bolstered to probably taunt police? Like, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, know, it's not happened. just like, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about James Renner. Okay. When Amy was abducted, James Renner was 11 years old and he lived two towns away and he became obsessed with her case. So if you're a true crime aficionado, you probably know who James Renner is. He promised himself that when he grew up, if police didn't solve her case, he would. So now he's an investigative journalist and he's dedicated much of his life to finding Amy's killer. He published a book that explains his findings, what he thinks happened to Amy and his top suspects. This is what Renner believed happened on the day of Amy's abduction. He thinks the man likely did not park in the center lot of the shopping center, but off to one side. Once he had Amy in the car, he needed to get her to a location where he'd have total control. To keep Amy calm and pretend that everything was normal, he stopped at a payphone and allowed her to call her mother. He needed to buy time before the panic set in over Amy being missing. He headed further and further into the country. Renner believed this is when Amy started to panic and tried to get out of the car. The man hit Amy on the head with something in the car hard enough to disable her. He believed the man was a planner that he had a specific plan for Amy. Once he got her to the intended location, he brought her in, undressed her, assaulted her, and then redressed her. He then stabbed her in the neck and let her bleed out. Once she had died, the man wrapped her in a blanket and curtain and drove her to the dump site. He knew the dump site and was familiar with the surroundings. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, I agree. I heard an interview with James Renner on, I think it was True Crime Garage a long time ago. It might have been on a different show, but, and they were talking about this case. And it's one that True Crime Garage has talked about a lot too, because they're also from Ohio, Mm -hmm. I guess. So it's like kind of a local case for them. But He said that when he was younger, you know, and he was like obsessed with this case and he saw it on the news all the time, he said that his dad had told him like, James, if you ever get abducted and you're held somewhere, he was like, eat everything, ingest everything, like ingest pieces of the carpet, ingest pieces of the like, like anything that you can get your hands on Mm -hmm. so that morbidly after you're dead. They can figure out who they can find those things and try to like link it to somebody. And I was like, whoa, that's like heavy for a kid to hear. Yeah. But it's also pretty smart, I feel like. Yeah, it definitely is. I don't know that I could eat carpet. I don't know. I don't know what I would do in that situation, but it is it's a good idea. But yeah, that is heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. Yeah. So years passed and police continued following leads and looking for connections between Amy's case and other young girls who'd been abducted in the area, but nothing panned out. In 2001, at a church in nearby Fairview, a large shaggy man stood up in front of the pews and screamed, my name is Richard Allen Fuller. I am known as Satan. I killed Amy Mihalovic. 
Whoa. Mm, yeah. Several off-duty police officers there apprehended the man and brought him into the police station. The man rambled incoherently and couldn't seem to focus on anything. Nothing he was saying made very much sense. They searched the man's home and found lots of strange writings, but nothing related to Amy. They found that he was a diagnosed schizophrenic who wasn't taking his medication and he was ruled out as a suspect. Hmm. In 2008, James Renner got a call from a former student from Amherst, which was very close to Bay Village. He said that while he was in school, one of his teachers, Dean Runkle, volunteered at the Nature Center. Runkle was a middle school science teacher who would give his students extra credit for visiting the Nature Center. He bred mice and would often take them to the Nature Center to feed them to the snakes. Mm -hmm. There were also several allegations from former students and parents that Runkle had lots of inappropriate contact and conversations with his students. The school's old principal said they'd investigated him twice for improper relationships with students. When police questioned Runkle, he denied knowing anything about the Nature Center, though there were several people who placed him there. That's very odd. Yeah. It's like, well, we know that you know about it, though. Yeah, we have proof that you have been there often. At the time, he was living in New London, Ohio, about two miles from where Amy's body was found. And he was a dead ringer for the composite sketch. When Renner received this call, Runkle had already left the area approximately five years earlier and had moved to Key West. Renner was determined to talk to him. He traveled to Key West and spent two days looking for him and showing his picture to locals with no luck. As he was leaving the area, he stopped at a stop sign and Runkle walked across the street in front of him. Wow. Renner jumped out to confront him and Runkle said that he never denied anything. He never said he didn't do anything. Renner bluffed and asked Runkle what he'd say if he told him he had a photo of him and one of his students at the Nature Center. And Runkle said that he never told police he wasn't at the Nature Center. He only told them he didn't remember being there. <sighs> that doesn't make any sense. I never said no. I wasn't there. I just said I didn't remember ever going. Like, yeah, those two things don't go together. And, yeah, it's like, that's how you say I wasn't there. Like, I don't. And he also the police are like, no, he said he wasn't there. Right. Like, shut up. Renner brought this information back to Bay Village police who did not seem very interested or willing to act on it. Hmm. 25 years following Amy's murder, police were given additional resources to investigate Amy's case. Billboards were posted pleading for information and they hired a retired FBI agent to re-examine the case. At the time of the discovery, no evidence was found on the blanket and curtain that were near Amy's body. A reevaluation found dog hairs on the curtain that were confirmed to belong to the Mahalovic's dog. Police released pictures of the curtain, hoping that someone might recognize it. In January of 2019, a new suspect was brought forward. A woman came to police and said that she believed her ex-boyfriend was responsible for Amy's murder. The man, who would have been approximately 30 years old when Amy was abducted, was living less than a mile and a half from the shopping center. He also had a niece in the same grade as Amy, and her family knew the Mahalovic's. On the night Amy went missing, the man didn't come home. His ex-girlfriend said that he called her around 10 p.m. asking if she was aware of the news coverage on Amy. On the day Amy's body was found, an FBI agent was tasked with recording all cars and license plates that drove by the dump site. The man's car was one that had been recorded, and he had no reason to be in the area. The man came into the police station to speak with investigators and made a lot of suspicious statements, including that 1989 to 1990 was a dark period for him. Initially, he denied that he that Amy had ever been in his car. 
when asked again if it was possible, he said, okay, but I don't know what the situation would have been. Hmm. How's that possible? Right. This young girl might have been in your car at some point. Mm-hmm. He also said that his DNA could possibly be on the curtain near Amy and on her body if someone had planted it on her. Hmm. He agreed to a DNA swab and polygraph test. Though it's obviously not the most reliable test of truth, the lie detector test indicated deception. The man never showed up to the station on the following day to sign the papers allowing police to search a storage unit. Police got a warrant and searched it, seizing evidence. Not only did the man look very similar to the composite sketches, two witnesses from the day of Amy's abduction picked the man's picture out of a photo lineup as they saw as the man they saw Amy talking to before she disappeared. But this is 25 years later? Right. That's not reliable at all. Mm-mm. And these were children, right? Yeah. At the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's not... I don't, I don't know if I... No. We want answers, right? Obviously, everybody wants answers, but this is not the way to go about it. No, this is... Memories fade. Your brain fills in stuff. Like, that's just... That's not... Yeah, if you want this man to be the man, then yeah, you could easily... Your, your brain, brain could like, say... Okay, yeah. yeah. So as far as we or Madison could find, this is the most recent update on her case and the man has not been publicly named. Amy's murder is still not a cold case. Police continue to investigate it and actively search for leads. Her beaten up bicycle is still sitting in their evidence room. Shortly after Amy's death, Mark and Margaret got divorced. They reportedly had marriage problems before their daughter's death, but the tragedy brought them to the surface. Margaret was diagnosed with lupus and moved to the east side of Cleveland and reportedly developed an alcohol addiction. Mark and Jason did their best to move on. Mark remarried in 1995 and inherited several new stepchildren who grew very close to Mark and Jason. In late 2001, Margaret was found dead in her apartment from possible complications from chronic alcoholism. Jason is now married with children of his own. Renner continues to investigate Amy's case, hoping he can bring justice to her and her family. He believes that the Nature Center is very important in this case. That is the connection that will ultimately lead to the apprehension of Amy's killer. Mm, Rough stuff. It is. It's so rough. I know. It's really sad. Thank God for people still working the case, though. I know. Let us know what you guys think about it. Do you think that... Runkle had anything to do with it? Yeah. And also, like, it seems like everybody that they talk about as a suspect matches the composite Mm -hmm. somehow. And like, they can't all look exactly the same. I just feel like composites end up being like, you could see different people in composites. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. Yeah. It's tragic though. I know. So let us know what you guys think about it. And, you know. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 